Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 23 in our series on American history. In podcast 22, I laid out the foundations of the new government as George Washington interpreted them. Remember again that the Constitution, specifically the article that discusses the executive branch, is frustratingly vague as to what the president can and can't do. So again, part of the reason why Washington is either ranked number one or at least in the top two presidents or in some cases is not considered able to be ranked because of how distinct he was being the nation's first president. So much of what he does lays the foundation that successive presidents will refuse to break away from under the, unless it's under the most you know egregious of circumstances, as will be discussed as this series marches on. So we looked at, again, what uh, George Washington did with some of those semantics about what his title is, whether he's going to respond to people's invitations to come to their houses for lunch or for dinner. He is just by and large going to say no thank you to any kind of invitation to dine with or meet with anybody that he does not know ahead of time before he became president for fear that it'll be he could be interpreted as showing favoritism. However, please know that even if the president of the United States does know you, you might want to think twice before you invite him or eventually her to your house. As friends from uh, George W. Bush, when he was in office not long into his first year in the presidency, uh, a guy that he knew from college, he and his wife invited George and Laura Bush over for dinner. That couple had no idea what they were in for when the Secret Service vetted the house several days ahead of time, and then continued to show up at the house unannounced time and time again until the president actually arrived. However, the woman was so distraught at the way her house was turned upside down. As I myself has witnessed, if a president's going to walk into a room that has a hang ceiling, those tiles will be removed so that nothing such as a bomb or a poison can be put up there. Everything is visible as much as possible when the president is walking into a room or through a hall or what have you. Well, this woman's dismay upon finding out that the Secret Service marched into her kitchen and unloaded her pantry and took out the shelves and turned her kitchen pantry essentially into a small closet large enough to fit two people in. When she demanded what was going on with that, he said, ma'am, we need to have a protective place for the president should something go wrong in this house come under fire or some kind of direct or indirect attack. And she said, so the lead officer is going to take the president and go in there? And he said, that's correct. And she said, well, what about my husband and I? 
And the Secret Service agent looked at her and said, what about you? We only have one customer. There's only one person we have to be responsible for. And that, of course, meaning the president. So, again, as I say, Mr. George Washington saying no, thank you. Believe me, a lot of future Americans will be thankful that he also set that example as well. So as we continue on now on podcast 23, Again, the Founding Fathers may have been frustratingly vague, as as that term actually has been used time and time again, frustratingly vague, but they really were. They were leaving it to the president at that particular time to interpret the powers of the Constitution as that president deems necessary or sees fit at that particular time and dependent upon the circumstances. No, the Founding Fathers had no idea that a future president will not only be able to fly in the air, but will actually also be able to fly on a plane that will have a title like no other. Please know that when Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman were flown in military aircraft in few places around the world and many places throughout the United States, they simply went by the tail number of that military aircraft. And it was no different for Dwight Eisenhower either. He was on a plane that has those letters on it, S-A-M, and then the tail number of the plane. Well, uh, Eisenhower being flown in a plane called the Columbine II, went by the call letters and that particular number. His pilot, the one and only pilot he had for all eight years as president, Colonel Bill Draper, was flying the president into Tallahassee International Airport when as he was coming in, he relayed his tail number, and his destination and where he needed to be, and the control tower responded that he was cleared to land. Well, you can imagine the horror when Colonel Draper is bringing the Columbine 2 with the president on board, approaching the runway, sees a Pan Am plane, or excuse me, an Eastern Airlines plane that it's about to land at the same time. Both planes veered off, avoiding a catastrophe, the president's plane was then next cleared to land, which it did, and then the Eastern Airlines plane came in right behind it. Well, Colonel Draper demanded to know why the confusion and what happened that both planes were coming in at the same time, and the uh, lead officer in the control tower protested and said it is, yes, our fault, but just understandable is that both planes, ironically enough, had the exact same tail number. And with the sketchy communication not always being heard clearly through the control tower from the pilots and the planes, they both were cleared to land at the same time. When Colonel Draper took off with President Eisenhower, he then relayed his location and insisted that his plane be called because it was owned by the Air Force, Air Force, and because no other plane has the distinction of the number one, that it simply be called Air Force One. It was a name, a moniker, if you will, that stuck from there on out. Please know, though, when the president is not on board and that plane is flying other dignitaries around the nation or the world or the first families on there without the president, it is not Air Force One. In other words, Air Force One doesn't exist when the president isn't on, is not on board any more than the vice president is on Air Force Two. If the plane is owned by the Air Force, 
that plane will be called Air Force One, which is the reason why there are many different types of planes that are referred to as Air Force One, not just that massive jet that we see with the tail number SAM with the current 129,000 as the tail number, SAM standing for Strategic Air Mission. When President Bush flew in on the back of a fighter jet, in the backseat of a fighter jet, that plane owned by the Air Force, that was Air Force One. If it's owned by the Marines, owned by the Navy, then it is simply called Marine One. So just a little explanation about these, uh, the reason for that particular type of a moniker. Unfortunately, too, Colonel Bill Draper, as much as he is rightfully to be lauded for his uh, heroic efforts to protect the president when he was landing that plane and dubbed the, or coined the term Air Force One, when President Eisenhower retired and basically went into obscurity, or at least attempted to, Bill Draper did too. And he went from a position of such importance and notoriety that he largely could not handle the lack of anything to do and going into the vagueness of everyday life that ultimately had got the best of him. And Colonel Bill Draper committed suicide. Bill Draper was a hero in his own way from the town of Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. He is not the first and he's not the last person to also have or be on a presidential mission or be in such a position of authority that when the president leaves office, they have what one might call an extreme episode of depression. That also happened to Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark. When Jefferson left office, Lewis, his fame largely started to fade away, having trouble with it, ultimately committed suicide. So that said, when the president lands, we oftentimes will see the president, again, something the founding fathers never had in mind. There's no way they could have dreamed it. As he gets in from a multi-million dollar aircraft to a $400,000 uh, Cadillac limousine that is dubbed the Beast or Cadillac One. And that's the presidential limousine of which, to our knowledge, there are two of. This, again, is a 16,000-pound Cadillac that has bulletproof undercarriage. It has bulletproof doors. The doors on them themselves are heavier than the 747, even on Air Force One. The Cadillac does have, in an undisclosed location, several samples of the president's blood. It can drive through a chemical and biological attack. We don't know to what extent it can go to drive through a nuclear attack. We also know, too, that the tires cannot be shot out from under it because of mechanisms that will keep the, the limousine going at all times. It is not unheard of that the president's car can also, if it deems it to be the safest route, plunge into a body of water, as the carriage of the Cadillac is not only soundproof, it is airtight with oxygen able to be provided for an undisclosed limited amount of time. Driving the limousine, of course, is of significant importance for the Secret Service, which is the reason why, too, it is not commonly known what Secret Service agents have the clearance to drive Cadillac One. If they are attempting to drive there to apply for the ability to drive the presidential limousine, they are trained not only by the Secret Service, but also the FBI for evasive driving techniques. Many will apply. Few will be allowed to actually study driving the presidential limousine and very few from even there will be able to pass it. As the one of the final parts of the final exam before one gets their license to drive 
Cadillac One is they have to drive at an unknown speed around a series of orange cones and a massive parking lot with a mock-up of that exact same Cadillac. As they are driving, they cannot hit any of the cones. They cannot reduce their speed to whatever the threshold that for security purposes is not known. If they can get that limousine around the last cone and bring it to a successful stop, they then have the right to be able to drive the presidential limousine. By the way, did I mention that that final driving test, they would have to drive the limousine backwards, in reverse. And at some point, one of their mirrors will be shot out from under them so that they cannot use it to be able to continue to drive the, pres- drive the limousine in reverse. So it's clearly is something obviously of significant importance. The president of the United States also receives his own zip code, which he also keeps with him even after he leaves the White House. When, when I say that the president has the zip code, if you are able to find out what that zip code is, Technically, that's the only five numbers you would have to write on the envelope, and the post office would know who it would go to. Please don't even attempt to try to send anything to the President of the United States because it will not even get past the first set of handlers for the simple reason that you are not using proper protocol to address the Commander-in-Chief. However, the Founding Fathers also could not have guessed was just how much pressure the presidency would put on the human being that happens to be called president of the United States for whatever number of years they are in office. The job description, again, being vague and the vast pressure in the office does leave it considerable pressure, as I say, that presidents of the United States, when they leave office, very few said they would ever do it again. A fewer have actually said they would have done it in the first place had they known just how ridiculous the pressure was. Remember, too, out of our 45 men, I am now counting Joe Biden, even though he will be inaugurated tomorrow. But of the 45 men who have been president of the United States, four of them have been assassinated, four of them died of natural causes. So it's not a great set of numbers to be compared to. And again, if you're thinking that I'm I'm wrong, there's an anomaly. If if Joe Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States, then he needs to be the 46th man. And the reason for that anomaly is Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland was our 22nd president of the United States. He was defeated by Benjamin Harrison who turned around and beat Harrison four years later. So our 22nd president is also our 24th president. And in terms of presidents dying in office, either due to an assassin's bullet or dying of natural causes, if you don't die in office, in some cases it might look like you did. And that's one of the reasons why I'll often look in front of me to see a breathless group of students as I bring up before and after pictures of George W. Bush when he comes into office and when he leaves eight years later. 9-11 and the war on terror really ages that man. Bill Clinton coming in in 1992, almost looking like, or 1993, almost looking like a big brother. But come January 20th, 2001, the man almost goes from big brother to grandpa. Well, Let's just say a lot of lawsuits and other personal issues can also age you, not just the office itself. Barack Obama fared somewhat well. However, 
I bring up a picture of Barack Obama and thing, and I mentioned to the class that would anybody have thought that maybe Michelle Obama didn't want to see Barack win another four years when he ran up for re-election in 2012. And then after the picture of Barack Obama, I bring up an older picture of Red Fox, and the, usually my classes just roar when they see that. But they get the idea. It really does age you. So George Washington is president. Almost everything he's doing, he is doing, of course, for the first time. It is being recorded. It is setting the example of how it's to be done going forward. From there, while George Washington is president, he does absolutely nothing to uh, to stop this. In fact, outwardly supports it. Congress will turn around and ratify the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, which we know, of course, today as the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights summarized essentially is a defense against a tyrannical government that might have the ability or the potential to impede our unalienable rights that were laid out not only in the Constitution, but more specifically in the Declaration of Independence. So those will get passed on December 15th, 1791. Washington also made it clear that not only before he even supervised the Constitutional Convention, but should he be elected President of the United States, he comes in with a lot of experience about the battlefield, about how to fight the military. He does not have the expertise that the country is going to need to navigate the treacherous days after the Revolutionary War was drawn to a close. How would he navigate the United States standing with our international counterparts on the Asian and African, as well as the Australian and European continents, not to mention our neighbors to the north and our immediate south, Mexico, following from there, although still under, of course, control from Spain. But how does he handle Central American powers and South American? That's the reason why, upon receiving the votes to become president of the United States, he immediately created what we know of today as the cabinet, creates the first three departments, the State Department, still called by the same name, the Department of the Treasury, and then also the War Department, which will later on be changed in the 20th century to be called the Department of Defense. But he has, even though he himself is familiar with war, he also recognizes that as president, he doesn't get to jam in any more hours in a given day, that he still only has 24 hours like everybody else does to get the work done. So for that reason, he still appoints somebody to the War Department in order, again, to have that much needed expertise and advice in a variety of different fields of which he himself may not be familiar with. Needless to say, every president after him will continue to not only appoint people to those three cabinet positions, they will become so influential and so important that eventually they're also going to need confirmation by the Senate before the president can actually name or appoint them as a permanent placement as head of whatever department it is he was looking for to fill. Please know, though, too, that in terms of notoriety, cabinet positions, while they may seem so uh, high-fluted from the outside looking in, oftentimes those are very, very difficult jobs, regardless of which cabinet position one is in. As we know, they are in line, of course, for 
the, the succession to the president of the United States, should the president, vice president, and down the line be taken out of action, be taken out of uh, existence for one reason or another, the cabinet is lined up to succeed the presidency. So they're extremely important. But what I mean, too, that it's, a, there, it's an, kind of an innocuous job is that it's a very thankless job. Reason being is more often than not, and you can you can attest this from your own experience watching the news, but oftentimes if a major breakthrough is made in the State Department or the Department of the Treasury, that secretary doesn't receive the accolades. He, he or she does not receive the massive round of applause. That's the president that gets that success. That goes on his CV, his resume, or eventually her. It's not that he won't pat the person on the back, the cabinet uh, leader, secretary of that particular cabinet on the back, absolutely. And then they can keep their job and smile while they have it. But they are also there that should there be a massive problem within that department, that is not the president's doing. The president uses, therefore, that cabinet member as the scapegoat in order to reform that department, <clears throat> when, ironically enough, that State Department, Department of the Treasury, War Department, whichever, <clears throat> excuse me, when they have to step down, because suddenly they, what you've, you can finish this for me, suddenly that cabinet member needs to spend more time with their family, needs to get back to their own careers, etc. It's a nice way of stepping down without being fired so that somebody can be blamed for the problems within that cabinet level position within that department. Somebody else is appointed and hopefully the problems will be corrected. So again, even somebody is highly rated as important as the secretary of the treasury. For example, Donald Reagan, Ronald Reagan's first secretary of the treasury. That's an individual that was not asked by Ronald Reagan himself to be Treasury Secretary. He actually had nothing to do personally with the president, not only all the way up to leading to Reagan's inauguration, but even immediately following his inauguration. He would thought that at that, that level, he would be by the president's side at almost at all times, able to walk into the Oval Office at a moment's notice. None of that was true, and it was not unique to Ronald Reagan. Finally, one of the other things just to briefly talk about within the George Washington administration, both terms, is what becomes known as the Mrs. Reynolds affair. And by affair, yeah, I know where your mind is going with that word, and it's accurate. <clears throat> exactly. Monica Lewinsky affair. You get the idea. However, it was not with George Washington. It was with his first secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton... <laughs> A wonderful man, a bright, beyond bright man in so many ways, and a true loyal patriot to America and as George Washington's right-hand man, not only during the Revolutionary War, but also, of course, in George Washington's presidency or his presidential administration. That is not to say that Hamilton did not have a downside. While he had a wonderful relationship with his wife, had a, a series of kids, many kids. Alexander Hamilton also had a wandering eye. And his eye happened to land on a woman who was seen parading throughout the downtown area of New York City. And her name was Mariah Reynolds. The name is spelled like Maria, M-A-R-I-A, but it's the English pronunciation of that name, Mariah. 
He took a liking to her, she to him, especially when she found out that not only was he a legend during the American Revolution, but that he was also a cabinet member in George Washington's presidential administration. So Mariah knew a meal ticket when she saw one. And she started to court Alexander Hamilton on and off a little bit and then more on than off until one day Alexander Hamilton showed up for one of his regular dates with flowers in hand, knocked on the door to find it opened not by Mariah Reynolds, but by a man that he didn't recognize. Judging by the look on Mariah's face, who ran up to the door quickly behind that man who answered the door, she put her head into her hands as Alexander Hamilton promptly dropped the flowers and took off, had no idea that Mariah Reynolds was a married woman. That man answering the door was her husband, who had come back from England. While you might think on the surface that that would put that marriage into a downward spiral, eh, no, Mariah Reynolds and her husband were too opportunistic for that. They saw a blackmail opportunity when one came in front of them. And as such, attempted to do that to Alexander Hamilton with not much success. However, the critics and the opponents of George Washington's political party, the Federalists, in this case, the Anti-Federalists, also saw an opportunity when they saw, or took advantage of an opportunity when they saw one. And as a result, they paid Mariah Reynolds to give them a lot of the love letters that Alexander Hamilton wrote to Mariah. They published them in the newspaper, hoping to smear him and hopefully not George Washington's administration. But as they would quickly learn, you smear one, you smear the whole group. What's worse for them is that the public actually gave a brutal backlash to the Anti-Federalist Party. For the reason being, you ready for this? That the affair between Alexander Hamilton and Mariah Reynolds, while unfortunate, was personal and therefore is not the public's business. Can you imagine that mindset today? I don't mean this to be funny, but if Americans reacted and had that same kind of wherewithal to not get wrapped up in people's secret private lives, can you imagine how different the political system would be today? Tabloids like the Inquirer, the Star, and others would be scrambling to try to print stories. And if America didn't have an appetite for it, some of those organizations might not be able to, or journals might not be able to exist at all, right? So again, it was the way that people thought back then, but sadly, as we know, not the way it it operates, sadly, today. So within this, as the Mariah Reynolds affair starts to spin out of control, one might say, well, is that the end of Alexander Hamilton and his place in the, in the George Washington administration? Absolutely not. And the reason being is because Alexander Hamilton, when he was appointed as first secretary of the treasury, the first thing that he did was something that was so popular that arguably had George Washington wanted to dismiss him, 
he might not have got too far because of the public support for him. And that was that Hamilton, one of the first things that he did when he was in office is he assumed every individual state debt and consolidated it into one federal debt. So no longer did the state of Connecticut or the state of Virginia owe France or any other international power any kind of financial loans due to the Revolutionary War. It was the federal loan. It was an American debt, not an individual state debt. While the states individually thought that that was a great thing, the real genius behind Hamilton's plan is it helped to unify the country. If ever, all of us have one national debt, that can help us bring us together. How does he go about paying back those loans then? That is, that is due to many European powers. That's when he passes the excise tax, which was a fancy way of saying a sales tax. He creates a national bank in which to consolidate the debt as well as to pay the debt off and consolidate money coming in from the taxes. He also passed a tariff on all foreign goods. All of this was significantly successful within the George Washington administration. It gave Washington and his supporters clearly a lot to smile about. But that didn't mean that dark clouds weren't on the horizon. And when we come back for the next podcast, we're going to find out about the thunderstorms that begin to start attempting to bring the Washington administration down. How will George Washington fare these political storms? Well, I haven't gotten that far in the textbook. So in the meantime, if you have the opportunity, if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review on my website. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.